Father, we thank you for your covenant, a covenant of grace through Jesus Christ that you have made with your people, that you have entered into to deliver your chosen ones out of sin and misery, to bring us into salvation and giving us eternal life. We pray that you would bless this time of study, that we might uh, understand your word, that we might understand your truth, that we might also learn from uh, the, uh, those who have taught your word in the past and uh, your deeds of old. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I mentioned last Sunday that um, the next couple Sundays uh, that we'll look at several issues uh, kind of in the 1800s uh, a little more topically. Um, and today, that issue is the status in education of children. And uh, there it goes. It's also starting to be spring. Um, all right, Ephesians 6.4 is where I will begin. Uh, probably a familiar passage, um, but Ephesians 6.4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Uh, in this passage, uh, Paul, who's writing to the saints, writing to the church, uh, has addressed children as part of that congregation, uh, telling them to obey their parents. Um, and then he also uh, turns his attention to fathers and directs them in the raising up of those children to bring them up uh, in the nurture or the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The Lord here in context is the Lord Jesus, uh, and to bring them up in that way. Uh, of course, this has been a biblical conviction and, and a uh, Presbyterian conviction that uh, children are included in God's covenant and, and church, the visible church, and receive baptism, uh, like the Israelite children of old received circumcision and should be brought up uh, in this way. Um, but in the 1800s, there was a bit of discussion on some of the details of this, some of the nuances of this. Uh, first, I want to look at the status of children, how, how that was viewed, that discussion, and then look more at the discipleship of children in the faith, and then the education of children more broadly. Um, I mentioned earlier in a lesson on the first Great Awakening that one, one downside or one excess uh, of that was that it became more common to presume that the children of believers were unconverted until they experienced a crisis and conversion experience. Uh, the older Reformed view is that the children of believers should be regarded by a judgment of charity as, as regenerate or treated as Christians, as with any other member of the visible church. Perhaps they're not, but uh, that's how they are treated and called to live up to that, to keep faith with Christ. Uh, but some of the revivalists taught that unless you could identify a time where you knew yourself to be lost before experiencing the new birth, you were not yet converted. You had to first go through that experience of feeling lost before you could be saved. Um, certainly that's uh, true for some, but um, it would be unwarranted to expect that of everyone who is being brought up in the discipline and uh, instruction of the Lord. 
Uh, that tendency was corrected or moderated among Presbyterians for a time, uh, but that tendency appeared again in the Second Great Awakening. Um, and one book that kind of recounts this story, this topic, uh, is this one here, The Presbyterian Doctrine of Children in the Covenant, uh, by Lewis Bevins Schenk. And uh, this is a book that Melody and I read aloud together early on in our marriage, although uh, you could also say it's one that helped her go to sleep as well. Uh, it's it's a kind of an academic book, but uh, is unique in kind of recounting this aspect of, of Presbyterian history. In the wake of the Second Great Awakening, not only were many people becoming Baptists, you know, the Baptist church was growing, uh, but also some remained in the Presbyterian church without having their children baptized. Um, and, and there was a neglect of this ordinance as the theology behind it uh, was neglected. Uh, even among those who did have their children baptized, there was some confusion as to what it meant. Uh, for some, it was just kind of a wet baby dedication. Uh, others, and, you know, many acted on the assumption that their children were unconverted uh, until they had that ex- conversion experience that had become common in revivals, and to kind of rely on these revivals for the conversion of the next generation, and began to see their profession of faith uh, following that experience as the time that they really joined the church. Uh, In 1845, J.W. Alexander, uh, son of Archibald Alexander, pastor in New York City, he wrote in a letter, but oh, how we neglect that ordinance, treating children in the church just as if they were out of it. Ought we not daily to say in its spirit to our children, you are Christian children, you are Christ's, you ought to think and feel and act as such. And on this plan carried out, might we not expect more early fruit of the grace than by keeping them always looking forward to a point of time at which they shall have new hearts and join the church? I am distressed with long-harbored misgivings on this point." Um, In New England, Horace Bushnell wrote a book in 1847 called Christian Nurture. Uh, Bushnell was in New England, and that revivalist tendency uh, had a longer history there and was stronger there, and he critiqued it. Rather than exalting the revival experience as the norm, he argued that the Christian idea, or the idea of Christian education, is that the child is to grow up a Christian and uh, never know himself as being otherwise. His book received mostly positive reviews from Presbyterians like Charles Hodge and later Henry B. Smith, who was a New School Presbyterian, and Lyman Atwater, who was a, another Princetonian, old school. These Presbyterians did critique Bushnell in some respects, and Bushnell would kind of end up going in a more liberal direction, that he credited natural means too much rather than God's blessing upon those means. Uh, but they did appreciate Bushnell, Bushnell's main point, uh, that, that, that the norm, at least, uh, ideally should be uh, the, the normal, ordinary means of, of parental instruction and growing up in the nurture of Jesus Christ. Now, there was a proposal to amend the Book of Discipline in the Presbyterian Church Old School in 1858 that brought some of these issues to the surface. Um, The the proposed amendment maybe wasn't too dramatic. Um, 
as it stood, the book said, all baptized persons are members of the church, are under its care, and subject to its government and discipline, and when they have arrived at the years of discretion, they are bound to perform all the duties of church members. A committee proposed changing this to say, all baptized persons, being members of the church, are under its government and training, and when they have arrived at years of discretion, they are bound to perform all the duties of members. Only those, however, who have made a profession of faith in Christ are proper subjects of judicial prosecution. Um, and so they uh, were just limiting uh, judicial church discipline to professing members uh, rather than uh, seeing uh, non-professing members uh, under the discipline of the church. Um, under that jurisdiction. And so a flurries of articles and reviews came out in... Yes, go ahead. Um, that raises all sorts of questions. Did they actually try to discipline people who were not discussing? So one reason that Charles Hodge was initially okay with this as a compromise was that he didn't know of it, uh, uh, he didn't know of the times where that had happened, you know, and so saw it more as a theoretical debate. It probably would come up as children, if they didn't profess faith, and so you're talking about teenagers or adults, you know, that uh, are in the church and, you know, go off the rails or, you know, just fail to profess faith, what to do in that instance, um, that it might become uh, more relevant. But, uh, but it was, it, what ended up being more important was kind of the principle of how are we distinguishing among the members of the church. Uh, and uh, some, especially in the South, uh, James Thornwell would argue that you know, they should not be subject to church discipline because they're not believers, and church discipline only applies to those who are converted or uh, to those whom we might think at least might be converted you know, and respond uh, in, in that way. So there's an implicit limitation to discipline just by virtue of not taking the Lord's Supper anyway. Right, right, although they're still members, so, you know. Right, right, there's still rebuke, admonishment, excommunication that, that would be part of uh, judicial discipline. And so Thornwell and Charles Hodge were both part of that committee, uh, but as the discussion came, came about, uh, Thornwell represented the majority for the amendment. Charles Hodge argued the case of the minority, against the amendment, and it actually get, got recommitted to the committee a couple times, and then the church split north-south during the Civil War, and so the Northern Presbyterian Church ended up not really changing it um, and, and kept keeping mostly the old language, whereas the Southern Presbyterian Church eventually took kind of a modified version of the revision uh, and, and affirmed it. Uh, interestingly, both the OPC and I think even the PCA substantially reverted back to the original language or, or equivalent to it. Um, but the, it, it brought these matters to, uh, to light and revealed some differences in the ways Presbyterians regarded uh, children of the covenant. Uh, some leading Southern Presbyterians taught that baptism signified different things to professing adults and to children. Uh, some of them even distinguished between the covenant of grace and the, what they call the ecclesiastical covenant, as in the ecclesiastical covenant of Abraham, and connected the sacraments with the, the church covenant and not with the covenant of grace. Um, and 
believed that the children of believers were brought into the church covenant and brought under the church's training, but were believed to be unconverted until their profession, unlike professing believers who were presumed to be regenerate. Uh, Children were believed to be heirs apparent to the kingdom, but not the true children of God among whom exists the genuine communion of the saints. And so Thornwell would write, It is clear that while they are in the church by external union, in the spirit and temper of their minds, they belong to the world, of the world, and in the church. This expresses precisely their status and determines the mode in which the church should deal with them. He goes on to say, The church utters a solemn protest against their continued impenitence and acquits herself of all participation in their sins. It is a standing censure. Uh, Their spiritual condition is one that is common with the world. Uh, He believed that the children of the covenant were, quote, to be dealt with as the church deals with all the enemies of God. She turns the key upon them and leaves them without. End quote. Now, to be sure, Thornwell and others like him believe that children of the covenant ought to be trained by the church and their parents with the hope of them being converted in time. And he, uh, but he believed the church was to do this with the understanding that non-professing members were unconverted members. Uh, they were excluded from the table not simply because they were not able to examine themselves and partake in a knowledgeable way, which is the point the standards make, uh, but because they were suspended as unbelievers, as, as a class, not individually. Uh, and so targeting any particular actions of them would be uh, unwarranted. Uh, and this comes into play even today, because some people will uh, believe, oh, children don't take the Lord's Supper because they're not Christians. Uh, but then if they come to the conviction that, oh, they are Christians, therefore they should take the Lord's Supper. Uh, but that doesn't follow. That wasn't the original reason for withholding the Lord's Supper from them to begin with. But it did become the reason for people like Thornwell, that they're excluded from the supper because their ju- spiritual condition is the same as the people in the world. Uh, they're, they're unconverted. Uh, they have to make a profession of faith before they take the Lord's Supper. So kind of a, end up similar practice, but kind of different reasoning for the practice. Not all Southern Presbyterians agreed with Thornwell, but that did kind of become the majority position there. Uh, Many Northern Presbyterians, such as the professors at Princeton Seminary, disagreed with Thornwell. Uh, Charles Hodge wrote in 1858, quote, the status, therefore, of baptized children is not a vague or uncertain one, according to the doctrine of the Reformed churches. They are members of the church. They are professing Christians. They belong presumptively to the number of the elect. These propositions are true of them in the same sense in which they are true of adult professing Christians. Both are included in the general class of persons whom God requires his church to regard and treat as within her pale and under her watch and care. And so they're, they're uh, regarded as Christians uh, like, like uh, adults who have professed their faith and ought to be called to live up to that status um, uh, by exercising faith in Christ and repentance. And that doesn't stop when you're a child. Adults should be exhorted that way too. Uh, Lyman Atwater wrote that, quote, membership in the visible church is founded on a presumptive membership in the invisible until its subject by acts incompatible therewith prove the contrary and thus to the eye of man forfeit their standing among God's visible people. Uh, That's kind of explaining what presumption means. Is that how they're regarded, judged by a judgment of charity, 
until they show themselves to be otherwise. It's not an absolute, like, of course they are regenerate, it's, it's how they're treated, but called to then live up to that, to feel and act and believe and repent as Christians. Um, and this presumption is, is based not on knowing their regeneration directly, but by the two criteria found in God's word, either a profession of faith and obedience uh, by those who can, uh, or by being an heir of that promise, being the child of a professing believer. Now, Hodge did teach that membership in the visible church is based on a presumption of election rather than a presumption of regeneration. Um, but that, he believed that was true for children and adults, that for the church in general. I'm not so sure about that point. Uh, but he did teach that children sh- could be saved uh, even from their infancy. And in any case, the significance of their baptism was the same as that of an adult convert. And both child and adult were to be regarded and trained as Christians. And parents had reason to be hopeful that with God's blessing upon the diligent use of ordinary means that their children would become children or would be children of God in truth. Uh, that that was uh, the, uh, the, the normal expectation um, that raise a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Um, and to, to rest in the means that God has appointed for extending his covenant into the next generation. So any questions on that debate, on the, on the status of children? Um, obviously, this, this would have some impact in how one treats their children, or how the church would treat their children, um, often, though, again, both sides of this debate are old-school Presbyterians, so they have a lot in common still, and often took similar approaches, similar practices that were traditional uh, among Presbyterians in general for the raising up of children in the faith. Uh, and so I want to look at that next, the discipleship of children in the faith. Uh, first point would be uh, parental responsibility. Um, While the leadership of the church had responsibility for the children of the church as members under its government and instruction, see last point of that discussion, a good deal of emphasis though was put on the responsibility of parents to raise up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. After all, scripture exhorted them in places like Deuteronomy 6-7 and Ephesians 6-4, Uh, to give that instruction. And they're the ones that are with the children from day uh, to day uh, and and shape that environment and uh, both by example and teaching, uh, train up a child in the way he should go, uh, whether for good or ill. They were to give their children a Christian upbringing uh, with love, with discipline, with instruction, with training. Um, And of course, much could be said in that, that they uh, taught from scripture and sermons and books Um, the importance of parental involvement. Um, I don't have the quote in front of me. I have a lot of quotes in front of me, but I meant to include another one by Robert Louis Dabney, but he has a beautiful quote on how the raising of children was intended to be a means by which God would spread his image throughout the earth. It was corrupted by sin, so that original sin instead spread. Uh, but that God in the covenant of grace is intended to use this same uh, ordinance to now raise up children uh, unto glory uh, through, through the covenant of grace, through these ordinary means to save. 
uh, to save them. One way that this was done, one part of this parental instruction was family worship. Um, there's a book, for example, by J.W. Alexander, uh, Thoughts on Family Worship. He mentions in that book that one of his church members had uh, participated in family worship with six generations. He had done it with his grandfather, he'd done it with his great-grandchildren, uh, and all the generations in between, um, and, and commended this uh, tradition. Even in his day, it was uh, a challenge to, you know, in the midst of the Industrial Revolution, to maintain this practice, but they saw that this was important. The doctrinal standards of the Presbyterian Church say that daily family worship is not to be neglected, is, is a duty. Uh, ideally, J.W. Alexander would say morning and evening, uh, that it would be good to practice, include scripture reading and discussion, prayer and singing, to include every available member of the household, including guests and servants, um, and, and to maintain that in one's home. Another means by which children were taught was that the use of the catechism, uh, the Shorter Catechism, Westminster Shorter Catechism in particular. Uh, parents were supposed to teach their children to repeat the Shorter Catechism, the Apostles' Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. And that was in their, in their book of church order. Uh, the children were to be taught these things. Of course, the Ten Commandments are included in the Shorter Catechism as well. Uh, the Catechism was to be memorized and discussed, a form of instruction in the Christian faith. Uh, the primary responsibility was on the parents to be teaching this, uh, but often the church or even the school might help in this work. Uh, for example, by examining the children in recitations. Sometimes this was done publicly. There's a beautiful painting set in Scotland in the 1700s called a Presbyterian Catechizing, where you have the, the minister there asking the questions, this young lady in the middle, and all these sorts of people from, you know, in the room hanging on every word you know, as, as its form of instruction, not just to the person memorizing it, but a good review for everyone. Uh, but sometimes this would be done in, in a class or sometimes in home visits, uh, but to ensure that this was being done. Uh, you could look in, in the examples of, of Charles Hodge and Archibald Alexander themselves as they were children and then became pastors. Uh, Charles Hodge and his brother were drilled at home in the catechism by their mother, and then went to catechism class with their pastor, Ashbel Green. His system was that he'd have catechism classes for the children around three to four to 10 and 12. Then after, that, after they memorized it, they have Bible classes in the pastor's study. And then after that, he'd give lectures on the shorter catechism. Uh, Archibald Alexander himself, he had memorized the shorter catechism by the age of seven and had begun working on the larger catechism. And um, then also taught it in his uh, church. Uh, so the catechism was uh, used uh, throughout the Presbyterian church. You even have people who maybe later even walked away from the faith like, uh, or, or didn't profess faith, uh, like Robert Louis Stevenson in Scotland or Grover Cleveland. Remembering it, that's what it meant to be raised as a Presbyterian. You learn the shorter catechism. Um, uh, another important means was attending worship bringing your children to worship. Later in the 1800s, it became evident that the Sabbath schools, uh, which started out as a separate institution and it kind of merged with catechetical instruction, uh, that they were being misused by many as a substitute for both parental instruction and for public worship, uh, that they were already begun, 
begun to be called even a children's church. And that was something that Presbyterian ministers and bodies reproved. Um, it shouldn't be a replacement. If anything, it should be a help both to parental instruction and children's attendance on worship. The General Assembly of the Southern Presbyterian Church declared in 1875, those having charge of the Sunday school work ought to so regulate the hours of instruction as to interfere the least possible with the children's attendance on the public ordinance of religion on the one hand and with family instruction at home on the other, both of which ought to be attended to by all on every Lord's Day. Um, Robert Louis Dabney wrote a memorial and overture for the Senate of Texas in 1893 on the sphere of the Sabbath school uh, in which he addressed some of these same concerns. So there's several of these means then for teaching the faith, passing on the faith to children, family worship, catechism, attending church. Um, Then there was also concern for the education of children in general. And Presbyterians had always stressed the importance of education. Uh, Going back to John Knox, you know, to to have um, the education of the young, um, started schools for that purpose. Of course, when you deal with schools in the 1500s, they're not exactly the same as schools today. I know in Martin Luther's case, where they started schools for the children, it was two hours a day for the boys and one hour a day for the girls. Uh, So not, not quite as taking up the same time as they might today. But education was important, but in America they faced a challenge. When, when they started public schools in Scotland, they were Presbyterian schools. Um, when you came to America, not everyone's Presbyterian, um, and more and more uh, you, the United States became more diverse, and the public school system became more centralized. And so it became evident that the public schools were becoming less and less religious. At first, they were simply non-denominational, non-sectarian, just Protestant. And then, of course, the Roman Catholics come and have to accommodate them and just always go into the lowest common denominator um, until they would just become secularized um, and exclude religion altogether. And so many Presbyterian leaders began to sound the alarm at this development. Uh, There were some, like R.J. Breckinridge, who opposed the principle of church schools because He thought they should put all their effort into trying to make the public schools as Christian as possible. Many leaders saw the need to encourage children, sorry, to encourage churches or individuals to set up Presbyterian schools and or provide a Christian education for their children at home. And so there's a number of quotes I have here. I might not be able to get to all of them, but Charles Hodge was on this in the 1840s. Our 1840s, he saw that Children are not going to receive a Presbyterian education at the public school. We need to do something about this. Uh, He said, now, with regard to this scheme, it may be remarked, so he's talking about not just not being Presbyterian, but even secular education in the schools. He says, now, with regard to this scheme, it may be remarked that it is a novel and fearful experiment. The idea of giving an education to the children of a country from which religion is to be excluded we believe to be peculiar to the 19th century. Again, it is obvious that education without religion is irreligious. It cannot be neutral, and in fact is not neutral. The effort to keep out religion from all the books and all the instructions gives them of necessity an irreligious and infidel character. Uh, He uses an interesting argument in his article, 
where he, he says, where is the Christian parent who would send his son to a college from which religion was banished, in which there were no prayers, no preaching of the gospel, no biblical instruction? But if we shrink from such an ungodly mode of education for the few who enjoy the advantages of a classical education, why should we consent to the great mass of the children of the country being subjected to this system in the common schools? Uh, that's an interesting argument. Wouldn't, wouldn't quite work the same way today, but interesting to note. But then he also says, we regard this whole theory of a mere secular education in the common schools enforced by the penalty of exclusion from the public funds and state patronage as unjust and tyrannical, as well as infidel in its whole tendency. The people of each district have the right to make their schools as religious as they please. And if they cannot agree, they have the right severally of drawing their proper proportion of the public stock. Uh, and so he probably would have been an advocate of, of school vouchers and that sort of thing, um, that the state should still support uh, religious education and, and let Presbyterians come up with their own schools and get their part of the public stock of funds for the support of this education. Um, uh, that, that, was his, that was his perspective. But he, his main point was that the education ought to be Christian, even Presbyterian in particular, weaving those convictions, that worldview, we might say today, into the whole instruction of the child. His son, A.A. A. Hodge, takes up the same uh, points in 1886. Uh, to summarize some of what he says in his article, The Kingly Office of Christ, uh, his first point was the tendency of the entire system in which already vast progress has been made is to centralization. He saw standardization happening in the public school system. Secondly, the tendency is to hold that this system must be altogether secular. And he sees that kind of logic of always excluding other people's beliefs to the point where there will be no beliefs uh, in, the, in the, the schools. And then third, the claim of impartiality between positions as directly contradictory as that of Jews, Mohammedans, and Christians, and especially that of theists and atheists, is evidently absurd. And no less is the claim absurd and impossible that a system of education can be indifferent on these fundamental subjects. The prevalent superstition that men can be educated for good citizenship or for any other use under heaven without religion is as unscientific and unphilosophical as it is irreligious. But more than all, atheism taught in the school cannot be counteracted by theism taught in the church. Theism and atheism cannot coalesce to make anything. All truth in all spheres is organically one and virtually inseparable. And he concludes by saying, I am sure I am as sure as I am of the fact of Christ's reign that a comprehensive and centralized system of national education separated from religion, as is now commonly proposed, will prove the most appalling engineering for the propagation of anti-Christian and atheistic unbelief and of anti-social nihilistic ethics, individual, social, and political, which this sin-rent world has ever seen. <laughs> he, he saw some things coming. <laughs> uh, was was pretty perceptive. Um, lastly, I want to bring up R.L. Dabney. Robert Louis Dabney uh, wrote on this topic as well. Uh, was maybe a little more suspicious than Charles Hodge on state funding or state involvement in schools, but had much of the same uh, conviction. Uh, he argued that because the American principle of religious liberty and disestablishment, that state education would be secularized, and he would actually almost argue that the state should not teach religion. So it should not 
it should be secularized, but education should not be secularized. Therefore, the state should not teach. Um, furthermore, he, he argued that to promote secularized education was to oppose Christianity and to destroy proper education. Um, he says a non-Christian training is literally an anti-Christian training. He says, in a word to the successful pupil under an efficient teacher, the school is his world. Make that godless, and his life is made godless. Um, then he, he, he looks to where, where is education uh, properly placed. He says, the answer may perhaps be found by going back to a first principle hinted at the outset of this discussion. Is the direction of the education of children either a civic or an ecclesiastical function? Is it not properly a domestic and parental function? Uh, and he argues that, that parents really have the primary responsibility for this. Now, he wasn't opposed to schools, but he did um, teach that uh, parents were the ones either to be training them at home or to choose and combine and, and um, establish schools for their training. He, he mentions the old Virginia system, which I'm not entire, I don't know all the details of what that system looked like, uh, but the last quote here, he says, our old Virginia system, besides its economy, had this, these great logical advantages, that it leaves to parents without usurpation their proper function as creators or electors of their children's schools, and that it thus wholly evades the religious question, which is, to you, insoluble. Um, and uh, saw that, you know, parents obviously uh, don't have an issue of separation of church and state, uh, that they should be choosing and creating and um, managing their, their children's education and um, ought to be personally involved, maybe using others as well. Uh, but I'll, I'll close with this uh, quote here from the state free school system, 1876. It is the teaching of the Bible and of sound political ethics that the education of children belongs to the sphere of the family and is the duty of the parents. The theory that the children of the commonwealth are the charge of the commonwealth is a pagan one, derived from heathen Sparta and Plato's heathen republic, and connected by regular logical sequence with legalized prostitution and the disillusion of the conjugal tie. Um, and was, was part of his argument there. So among the Presbyterians, there might have been some uh, discussions, you know, should we have church schools? Should we have, you know, parents organized schools? Should we train at home, maybe with you know, parents or tutors? Some of the details, there, there could have been uh, some discussion. What about the use of state funds for Christian schools? But what they all, uh, all agreed on was that education uh, must be done uh, in a Christian manner uh, with what we would call a Christian worldview uh, to uh, bring all these facts of education in, into the light of Scripture, in the fear of God. And what's going on in public education out there is going the wrong direction. Uh, and we need to be aware of, of that danger. Um, so that's bro broadly the, you know, what the status, the discipleship, the training of, of children uh, in 19th century Presbyterians. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from. I'll learn from some of their insights, um, even though it was, was some time ago. Yes? Subtle distinction, probably, but back then when they were writing, they were talking about the state, each state's involvement, it seems like, whereas today we think in terms of the federal government's involvement. And so we've got really two laws to break, right? The federal and then the state. 
Right. They, they saw the centralization coming, but it's still at the time, it was less centralized than, than it is today. It was centralizing into the state level. Right. Now there's a federal uh, Department of Education and... and Even you mean like yesterday at the caucuses? Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely relevant issues in, in many ways. All right, well, let's close in prayer. Um, Try to remember if oh, next time we'll look at similar way, but uh, similar time period at at worship and sacraments, uh, some of the discussions and practice, what we can learn from them in those areas. So let's go ahead and pray. Dear God, we give thanks to you for. Uh, the children that you have given your people. And uh, we ask that you would indeed give parents uh, wisdom in the training of these children, that you would also work in their hearts and in their lives according to your timing, by your spirit, that they uh, all might indeed be children of God in truth. We pray that you would help us all to walk in truth in accordance with our baptisms, resting upon the cleansing power of Christ and now Uh, walking as those uh, who have been set apart unto holiness. Uh, We uh, pray that you would uh, preserve your people and extend it from generation to generation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.